But if there could be an organization that is sort of the expert and understands the local scene, right? Having an, an expert that can support the scaling of it makes so much sense. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm speaking today with someone who was on almost three years ago, Jennifer Hawkins, uh, President and CEO at One Neighborhood Builders in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be back. And I, I've been really curious how things are going, and I'm excited to get uh, caught up uh, on uh, what you're doing. But uh, the first thing I'd just like to clarify for folks is what One Neighborhood Builders is. So uh, what, what do you do? We are a nonprofit organization that's based, as you said, in Providence, Rhode Island, actually work across the state of Rhode Island to improve lives through housing and connecting um, community. So what that really means is that we um, seek to address the affordable housing crisis, which has become so much more acute in the last few years through developing and preserving affordable housing. And then we also convene um, neighbors and like-minded organizations to work to address um, health disparities and um, barriers to economic mobility in um, Providence. And then thirdly, we use our experience in, in doing that work of being a backbone for a place-based initiative and developing and managing affordable housing to improve policies and um, and lead to systems change. So that's our full circle work to accomplish our mission. One of the things that I think I understand about what you do and I love is that I feel like you are very focused on structural change. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to do good, who I wonder, you know, in 10 years, what will they have accomplished? You invest in places, you build them up, you make sure that they're there for the long term. And and I feel like I hope that your work in broadband is, uh, you know, is a part of that also this long term strategic thinking. Yeah, thank you. That is always our effort um, to have more durable change. And um, yeah, our work uh, in broadband, I think, is an example of not only doing a proof of concept here in the Onlyville neighborhood of Providence, but also pushing on um, the system and trying to um, pave the way for entities in the state and at the municipal level to really address the digital divide and the equity gap related to broadband. And, and I think one of the things that we won't have time to talk about, I'm guessing, because there's so much I want to ask you about, is that you are hearing from lots of other folks who are watching what you're doing and they're trying to copy that. So that is a is a good sign. Uh, you mentioned Onlyville. This is where you're focused for the broadband work. This is an area of high poverty, a lot of, uh, of immigrant communities, and a particular lack of access to uh, health information and, and access, healthcare access. That's correct. Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, Providence is a pretty small place. It's about 190,000 people and it has 25 distinct neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, and so Onlyville is one of those 25 neighborhoods it has about um, 3,500 residents and it's quite small. It's very densely populated. Um, and it also um, had the lowest in-home um, rate of, of internet in um, Providence and, and really pretty much across the entire state of Rhode Island. 
Um, it also, I should say, was the um, area that was hardest hit by COVID infections and fatalities had the greatest number of any zip code in the state. There was a lot of things kind of coming together um, around 2020. And in 2020, we spoke toward the end of 2020 about how you were getting involved to try to um, uh, try to help change uh, those facts on the ground. Uh, that was episode 453. I just looked it up really quick for people that want to go back. I would recommend listening to that first because we're not going to repeat ourselves very much. Uh, but uh, you built a, a whole network and I just pulled the oh, I pulled the stats from your report, which we have a link to in the show notes. Um, a great case study of what you've done um, in the case study. It noted that at that time you had installed two hubs, 12 access points, more than 24 transmitters uh, to provide free Wi-Fi internet access along major arterials in the community. Is there, what am I missing when I just throw numbers out there to people? What, 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 what were you looking to accomplish with the network? We were really just trying to be able to address the fact that, you know, families didn't have access to reliable high-speed internet so that their kids could learn from home or the parents could work from home or they could do telehealth, etc. So, um, you know, I think underneath that, those numbers is just this note, this um, kind of real core idea of there was real inequity um, that families here in this neighborhood were seeing. Um, and so, you know, we didn't set out to be an internet service provider. That's ultimately what we have become. And now we're trying to actually figure out an exit strategy for that. Um, <laughs> but that, but that's, that's ultimately what happened. And we've expanded those access points. Um, and kind of swapped out some of the technology because, you know, technology changes so rapidly in this mm -hmm. space that, you know, um, what we originally had utilized, we recognized wasn't um, equipped to reach the high speed um, numbers that we ultimately wanted to have get. Yeah, it looked like uh, you were originally providing around 20 megabits symmetrical, which is uh, it's a decent connection. Uh, be, you're able to do like video learning and things like that uh, if you have a high quality connection at that. But it, it seems like you both wanted to provide higher quality connection to make sure that people really could do all the things they need to do. But also you wanted to get to more um, devices because you didn't hit your target uh, number of homes that you wanted to or families that you wanted to to reach. And so you reconfigured. Uh, you have equipment names in your report mm -hmm. for people that really want to dig in and look at the specific models that you were using for equipment. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I honestly don't remember the names of all the equipment. And I don't <laughs> want to misspeak. So I would suggest that folks download the case study that's available on our website. So we do have all the specs there. But that's exactly right that um, we, you know, are now able to achieve 100 uh, megabytes per second um, up and down. And so that's really has become the new standard. Um, it's that I think is is even a kind of reflection that a few years ago, 20, you know, symmetrical was the standard and now it's really more like 100. So we are able to achieve that through um, the improvements in the system. Um, and as you noted, you know, we really were kind of underwhelmed by the uptake. Um, we sort of had plateaued in getting new users. And we realized it was that you know, it wasn't, they were getting dropped off or it wasn't fast enough. There was holes in the mesh. So we sought to um, strengthen the mesh network so that 
um, it really attracted more users. And I think it's important to note that the goal uh, was not to connect everyone in their homes in the entire neighborhood. That is something that is beyond your capacity. And you recognize that you're trying to provide what we would often call a gap network uh, in the terminology that that we've used, at least, uh, which is to make sure people have something, uh, you know, if they don't have anything in their homes. And uh, so I, I would expect that if people live in an apartment building right along one of those main arterials, maybe they can get it their homes but for other people they're going to be going outside possibly to to get it and download things and that sort of a thing that's exactly right right we did not set out to replace commercial services but to really serve as a kind of to complement that and um you know we do see that there's on thoroughfares um of the neighborhood where the signal is particularly strong you know we were thinking that people will go to that area to connect, or maybe they're in a restaurant that's along there, um, or there might even be retailers that using it for their point of sale transactions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you we set out with the intention of it's going to be in home, mostly the residential areas, and you really don't know, uh, you know, you can't control how people use it. Um, but we are finding that it is beyond just simply kind of homes that people in the neighbor, like other people are visiting the neighborhood and then are logging on as an example. Right. Although, you know, it did strike me. I mean, there was this, uh, this note, I mean, um, I thought maybe, oh, people are wandering by, but um, there's a, a quoting from the report. By June of 2022, uh, 1NB Connects had an estimated uh, 2,500 unique users of the free Wi-Fi network. That's not too surprising for me, but it surpassed your goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what shocked me was on average, users are connecting to the network for 308 minutes per connection. Um, yeah. That's an average, and and that is suggests to me that that it is not people wandering through the neighborhood so much as like people who are really taking advantage of your investment. Exactly. Yes, and that they, you know, but for this, they wouldn't really, they wouldn't have an alternative too, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and yeah, you know, we um, we saw that this past August had our greatest increase in unique users. So we had twenty four. More people in the month of August 2023 join on um, than than before. So, you know, every month we check new users. Um, mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, there was a really significant uptick in that month. You know, and we definitely do see that summer has the highest usage, which you could also say, you know, kids are home from school. That could contribute to it. People are around more. But yeah, it's, it is definitely has been interesting to track the data. Um, we also, you know, see that you can see whether someone is logging on via their phone or desktop. And you would also kind of conclude that it's in-home users as opposed to transient users based on the desktop sessions. And so um, we had in the in two year to date in 2023. So I think the data was pulled back in at the end of August, we had 8,700 desktop sessions. So there's obviously some duplication there, but there's a lot of people using it from their home devices. Mm-hmm. And my desktop, do you, would that also include laptops? Are yeah, you, yep, okay. yep, exactly. Yep. Just not a, not a phone or a right. mobile device. Right. <laughs> right yep. Okay. Um, now I want to talk briefly about costs because I do feel like 
you know, a lot of people who are really focused on this, they might say, well, why don't you just connect everyone? I'm guessing that would cost more than 10 times what you expended. Oh, yeah. You mm-hmm. noted that you started this with a with a wealthy donor who, or I mean, a donor who is generous, I should say. I have no idea yes. if the person is wealthy. They put in, they were willing to do $100,000 and you said, oh, we could build a network for that. And this is a network that includes a number of wireless uh, hubs, uh, transmitters, uh, access points to fiber optic runs to connect them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when we talked, you realized it would cost about twice that. Um, mm-hmm. In the report that came out last year, it noted that the capital costs had been almost $500,000 mm-hmm. um, in uh, in capital costs, another $100,000 in operating expenses. And I don't think it incorporated your time, but you've done a lot of advocacy around it and also raising the funds and, and making sure that it was useful. You hired two interns to help uh, with... Uh, um, with outreach and things like that. And so I think people should appreciate that a, it is expensive to build an effective gap network, but mm-hmm. the cost of building out to all of Onlyville, I mean, I don't know offhand, but I would assume mm-hmm. it's on the order of like more than $5 million approaching $10 million to get everyone connected. And you don't have that kind of funds. Like- right. <laughs> right. Right. No, that's exactly right. And because we really didn't know what we didn't know in the beginning, um, we, had wildly underestimated the costs associated with this, which I think I had, you know, mentioned before that it was, it was a good thing because I think it was, you know, if we had recognized that it probably would have been too daunting and we wouldn't had started. Um, but once we sort of made that commitment and were going along and the price tag raised, we just said, okay, well, we need to raise more money. So yes, as the report noted it, the ultimately the capital costs were about 475, uh, you know, shy of $500,000. And then um, we've now our annual costs are about $65,000 a year. We were able to sort of stream that, streamline that. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the annual cost. And that is no staff time. That is just what we pay for our providers and the, you know, all the service contracts associated with the broadband. Um, but if you add in my time and my team's time that works on it, that would be certainly much, much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it is a kind of an interesting question, like what would what is the full cost for covering the entire neighborhood? Um, you know, our mesh network covers about two thirds of the neighborhood, but probably only of that of that two thirds area that is covered, probably only half of that or two thirds of that area is really, really high quality. Kind of at the heat map will indicate as you move further away from the the access points, the the broadband diminishes in quality. But think about that. That is $65,000 for, say, half the neighborhood on an annual basis and $500,000 original investment. So it's probably not $5 million. I think that's a way more than it was. Well, would to do cost, fiber to but- the home. I mean, to do fiber to the oh, home, I think yeah. it might, yeah. If you were going to really say we're going to build a permanent you know, solution. Oh, yeah. If, um, you know, if the state, for instance, wanted to say, you know, we're truly going to address the the gap here that, um, you know, that is left behind, uh, the, the city has access through commercial providers. But as we've seen in many places, there are just things that there's a population that is not their needs are not going to be met the same way that um, other private businesses, you know, don't perform social services. There's a reason right. that we have government and nonprofit organizations that focus mm-hmm. on problems of poverty. So exactly, yeah. exactly just it's not economically 
uh, viable, right? Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Now, I'm curious how we know how much how many devices have accessed it. Do you have a sense of whether people have been able to use it for telehealth services and things like that? Yeah, so we can look without being too big brothery, or we are able to see kind of patterns of use. Um, and, you know, we can see that there's a percentage of um, sites that are related to sort of banking and e-commerce. There's a set of sites that are related to um, like streaming services. So your Netflix and music and so forth. Um, so while we can't get into sort of like people's personal information, we can see, you know, general types. That is one of the types for sure. You, yep. you don't necessarily need to say this person is going to these sites, but you can right. say in aggregate, we know that our network has down, has moved this much information from Netflix and this much information from other, other entities. Exactly. Right. And so that, I don't have that data on the right in front of me, but we are able to kind of look at those those chunks, like I said, kind of streaming or commerce, um, educational buckets. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, whether you're using it for, um, for any of those purposes, you'd like to think, oh, I'd like to see more educational use and less entertainment. But you know what? <laughs> um, the fact is that we all we all use it for all of those complicated reasons. And, um, you know, low income people have just as much right to uh, use it for all those reasons, too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the cost of taking four people to the movies is far greater <laughs> than the cost right? of Netflix for like three months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what is the role of the uh, your interns then in terms of, you know, one of the things that we find with these networks is you make them available and people may not know about them. If they know about them, they might not trust it enough to use it. Even if they want to use it, they might not really know how to get on it for the first time. So what have you had to do to help make sure people can take advantage of it? With our, our two interns and then subsequently, we actually worked with a um, this brilliant woman who is kind of steeped in um, continuous quality improvement and how you make kind of very micro changes to um, to nudge uh kind of uh, changes in behavior, sort of really mm -hmm. a human-centered design focus. And um, between all of that work, we realized that asking for a passcode was a barrier. So, you know, we had all of these kind of flyers and banners, and we did a lot of door-to-door -door outreach. We had our interns tabled at the local food pantry, as an example, to say- You had a parade. Yeah, we had a parade. <laughs> that was excellent. I love the parade. We drove around honking with a bullhorn. Yes. And, and, you know, we let folks know about the, the, the Wi-Fi, but the, the interns working one-to-one -one with individuals and saying, okay, let me, give me your phone. Like, let's go on here. See if you hit this button and then one MB um, Wi-Fi pops up, click on there. They're like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, so literally just kind of that real handholding process was effective. But we recognized um, that the passcode was really deterring people. You, you, We tried to make it as simple as possible, but you were, you were gonna forget it. And so we got rid of it. 
So that was a test that we did, a continuous quality improvement test. We're like, okay, for two weeks, we're going to not have the, the passcode and see. And it really, it changed. It really had a big uptick. So we're like, okay, we're getting rid of it. So we did these kind of micro changes. Um, so at the beginning, if I wanted to come into town, I would need to know a passcode to be able to access the internet. And then it got to a point where I would just, my device would connect and then I would just go on without having to put in any special information. That's right. Exactly. The, or also originally we asked these three questions. Um, do you rent or do you own what your street address is? And do you currently have internet in your home? And you could put, you know, your street address is like, you know, XXX Pine Street. We didn't test it for authenticity or anything, Mm -hmm. but we, um, we were trying to just get a sense of who the users were. Again, we found that while that was really good information to have, it was yet another barrier to people. They were like, why are they asking me these questions? What are they going to use as information? So we really tried to um, remove all of that information um, and prefer to kind of gather points around like how many devices are connected or what type of device through the back channel of our um, uh, of our service as opposed to putting it up front so people had to answer these questions in order to uh, connect mm-hmm. now one of the things I saw is that it looked like you were going next into uh, something that's a bit of a hobby horse of mine which is what I would consider to be the low-hanging fruit of high quality access in multiple dwelling units and apartment buildings uh, it looks like uh, you were raising money to uh, be able to connect every unit in a building with a high quality connection directly. How's that going? Yeah. So that's the, that's what we're trying to do next. Moving from, okay, this is a community-based solution to now a housing-based solution. So we have a housing development project that we are going to be starting construction on in hopefully, God willing, February. And that will be 39 new apartments and a five-story elevator building. And we want to make sure that it is that it, we have uh, free or very low cost, high speed internet for everyone. Um, and so, you know, we are evaluating um, using the affordable connectivity program or not. Um, you know, frankly, I'm concerned that the ACP program, as it's known as, will be exhausted and that there may not be a continuation of federal funding for it. And so if our program is predicated on receiving that $30 a month subsidy, that that might not be a smart move. So we're trying to figure out um, a system that we do ourselves as opposed to connecting people with a commercial Mm -hmm. provider, and then they receive the subsidy to offset that cost. Yes. And I'm curious then, you're, you drilled expertise in providing services. If you're building a brand new building, um, you have different wiring options. Have you uh, looked at uh, what it's going to take to make sure that every unit is is wired in a way that will be future-proof and give you maximum flexibility? That's where we need help. So if any of your listeners <laughs> <laughs> can provide us with some technical assistance, there is a um, another organization that I have a great deal of respect for called POA, um, P-O-A-H. 
uh, Preservation of Affordable Housing, but they're known by their acronym. And um, we've been speaking with them because they have um, also made a sort of similar commitment to ensuring um, access, digital access in their buildings. So we're kind of trading um, advice to one another. But I think that this, you know, this is the, the next step is mm-hmm. how do we kind of build it and it just becomes almost like a design spec, right? We have this type of double hung windows and we have this type of oven and we have this type of broadband um, so that we can just sort of rinse and lather and repeat at all of our developments with the understanding that technology changes all the time too. So, yes. So (laughs) I will, I will say that anyone who's listening to this show is capable of finding uh, one network builders and (laughs) you, Uh, I'm also very happy to connect people to you. Uh, I will say that I would recommend nothing less than uh, cat six cabling or uh, potentially uh, fiber optic um, to the unit. Uh, I've, I think you'll find different people have different preferences and I'd be happy to, uh, I will try to dig out uh, some of the consensus opinion and share that with you. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I think people will be suggesting uh, some conduit to be able to, you know, if in 15 years you want to add something else to be able to lower those costs. Um, I think those costs will add very little to the cost of construction, uh, you know, on the on the front end, given that how expensive it is to build everything today, mm-hmm. including some extra conduit and some extra wires shouldn't add very much to it, I would think. That's thank you. I'm writing that down and I will definitely take you up on any future information you can find. That's excellent. Yes. yes. And so then I think the other thing I wanted to just ask you about was you mentioned, you know, that this is something that uh, you may not want to be in 10 years still in ISP. Uh, right. What are you, what are you thinking about along those lines? So when we originally set out to do the one MB connect um, in Onlyville, we said we are going to ensure that this will run for five years. We will maintain it and um, provide high quality service for five years. And so, you know, we are now, we launched in November of 2020. And um, so we're coming up on three year anniversary of that. And we recognize that we need to figure out a sustainability strategy. And so, you know, we're talking to the to the state, um, the Rhode Island Commerce Department that is um, serving as the, the entity to apply for BEAD funding and other sources from the state and put together the statewide plan. Um, so they've been really great partners and they they appreciate what we've done to sort of provoke the conversation locally. Um, but that's where we're looking for someone to, meaning really the state or the city, to either take this over or replace it with even something better. Mm-hmm. We can't do this forever. It's a, a different commitment if it's in a building that we own and it's for the residents of the building that we own. That I think is a, a longer commitment, you know, but if it's more about kind of broad in the community at large, I think that we need to um, put some parameters around that. And I'm curious because I think these things are difficult. You've mentioned you've substantial staff resources you've put into this. Um, as you hit that five years, you're going to be facing hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to keep the network alive as you're replacing various active components of it. Um, is it primarily the, the financial challenge or is it just also the management of it that you fear as someone who is responsible for so much? Definitely both. I mean, yes, there is a financial consideration, but, you know, having just completed our new um, kind of strategy to guide us for the next five years, 
Um, I am committing myself to becoming better at saying no, not mm-hmm. just so good at saying yes. And, you know, I think that this kind of winnowing of what is core to um, our our work and what can what are we uniquely positioned to do versus what a partner should do. And so this idea of us starting something and spinning it off to someone else to ultimately implement or to carry on is, I think, appropriate. Um, you know, that is the, the same example that we did with an after school program at our local elementary school. We've um, been operating that for five years and we've now just found um, a partner to take over operating that for us mm-hmm. at the end of June. So um, similar sort of idea, like how do we, how do we be an instigator for good work? It is not surprising to hear you say this. I think this is a really important conversation. We've talked with people in other cities who want to be where you're at, but I also think the reality of the financial and the the staff commitment is significant. I feel like we have to have an organization like yours that launches it because of the trust you have within the community and a knowledge, I think, of the community and, and how to uh, interact. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, I do feel like ultimately what we'd like to have is some sort of nonprofit organization rooted in the community who would be specialized in this. And ideally, frankly, we'd see city and state support for it because of, as we talked about, this is a service that deals with poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's the sort of thing that I have no idea if there's room for that in Providence. But to me, that seems like an ideal situation uh, would be some entity that is focused on connectivity uh, that would be there for the longer term. I, I think you're completely right, Chris. You know, it quickly becomes incredibly complex and technical. And for a whole bunch of organizations that are working in different geographies or with different populations, that they all have to bone up on this, it seems really inefficient. But if there could be an organization that is sort of the 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 expert and understands the local scene, right? What are the local uh, city and state agencies that have resources and who are the the players, uh, like both in the providers of the the wire and the the ocean is the technical provider that we use. Um, You know, I think having an, an expert that can support the scaling of it makes so much sense. Um, and then you can partner with organizations like One Neighborhood Builders to get it going, but that um, there is an entity that kind of outlives the one-off projects. That would be really great. Why don't you come to Rhode Island and start that up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would I would enjoy that. I've enjoyed uh, the multiple times I've been in Rhode Island, uh, but I'm committed to uh, being snowed on more often than you get. <laughs> Um, this has been uh, wonderful. I really appreciate uh, your time, and uh, and I really, like I said, that case study that you that, that you produced, your organization did, is, is chock full of great information. I hope people will check that out. And uh, yeah, I look forward to checking in again to seeing how things are going with uh, with uh, expansion. Please do. I would really enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for your interest in our work. Yeah, thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR 
including building local power, local energy rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>